We thank you for being with us. I know probably a lot more of you. Okay, thank you. A lot more of you are uh, watching the YouTube channel than, uh, than we usually have today because of uh, the vacation and 4th of July. If you've got some time off, maybe you're listening to the podcast uh, or, or an archive. Uh, maybe that's not your normal routine, but now you know on days that you can't make it, uh, it is available to you live on YouTube at noon on just about every Wednesday. Uh, then it's put out on archived a few hours later. Uh, it'll be avail uh, always available on the podcast, uh, all of our social media platforms. If you follow the Rick and Bubba social media platforms, we put a link out uh, soon after. For all of that, if you're trying to go back and catch up, you can go to the YouTube channel and find those archives or the podcast channel, find those archives. Uh, but you also can find every Bible study that we've ever recorded uh, at BurgessMinistries.com by clicking on media. Uh, let's do a little bit of housework uh, before we move into today's study. If you are here and you don't have to be a member of Shades Mountain Baptist Church, that's the church that I'm a member of. A lot of the men in here are from the men's ministry program there, but this applies to anybody uh, who is watching this or listening to this, uh, we're going to have an opportunity. The next man church that we're going to have is August 31st. And uh, excuse, 20, you said 35th. August 25th. Got it. August 25th. Greg Powers, uh, who is a, a, a golfer, will be speaking to us that day. And then the very next day, on the 26th, uh, we'll be participating in what is called, it's a great ministry, the Challenge uh, Golf uh, Tournament. And this is an opportunity for anybody who plays golf or just would like to caddy. This is what we want you to do. We want you to go out and find two men uh, that you th that you have a pretty good idea. This is not for hanging out with your buddies or anything like that. This is for you to get two men that you think are unchurched or lost, and you will bring them and you'll go to them and you'll say this: How would you like to play Greystone absolutely free? Uh, it's handled. We've covered it. It's paid for. Uh, you can play golf on August the twenty sixth. Uh, and be part of the tournament, and I will be your caddy, and your job is to serve them that whole day, hang out with them, get them refreshments, let them play Greystone for free. They'll come in for a lunch uh, in the middle of the day, and they'll hear Greg Powers, uh, Greg Powers' testimony. They'll go out and play the rest of, uh, of the day, and then come back for a dinner. They'll hear, hear from Greg Powers again, and then I'll get up and, uh, and offer an opportunity for them to respond to what they've heard and, uh, and give them uh, a presentation of the gospel. So if you are interested in that and you think that's something you'd like to do, uh, get contact me either by text or email, and I will give you the contact of the person you need to contact to say, I'm bringing two guys. I want to be one of the caddies. I'm in. Uh, so uh, just, just let me know. Get in contact with me. I'll hook you up with a person that will be sure that on the 26th you will be participating in that. So if you if it's something that intrigues you, you think you can do it, again, you don't have to be able to play golf because all you're going to do is caddy. Uh, you won't play. They'll play. You'll caddy. Uh, but if, that, if that's something you're thinking about, think of two men you'd like to invite, and then when you're ready and you think you're ready to sign up to be one of those caddies, uh, you, can, you can get with me, and I'll get you in touch with our contact who is going to be sure you're signed up and ready to go. So make a note of that. And, of course, the Man Church on the 25th. Everybody's invited to that. Uh, there's no ticket or anything needed for that at all, okay? So let's, uh, let's open up in a word of prayer and jump into the pursuit of holiness, part nine today. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for these men who have uh, made the decision, uh, even on a, a, you know, usually a, a holiday week, uh, to, to find time to come here with these other men and, and jump in your word. Thanks to all who are watching on YouTube right now or they're listening to an archive. And I pray today, Lord, as you continue to try to teach us this, this very, very important truth, I pray, Lord, that today we take another step in understanding uh, holiness, understanding the call to sanctification maybe better than we did before. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you're new, this is your first time today. We are walking through uh, one of our many Bible studies that we've done. This one is one, as we said, a lot of times, especially in the Western church, not overly popular because we're actually talking about that uh, though you have been justified and you have been redeemed, and that may not have happened for you, but let's say you say that that has, that there really is no indication in the Bible that that could really have happened in your life, and it didn't change you. Uh, because, again, what are we saying? If we think that Jesus Christ can enter our life, if the Holy Spirit can justify our spirit, and, and the Bible tells us in the Trinity that the power of the Holy Spirit is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, if we believe that the power of, 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 of the, the one and only living God that, that spoke creation into existence, uh, we believe that the power that tells the weather what to do has somehow 
the full righteousness and the full power of God has entered our spirit, and God just doesn't have the ability to change us. Well, that don't say a whole lot about God then, does it? And it certainly doesn't say a whole lot about Jesus. So it's probably likely then that that's not really the case. Uh, it is interesting how many people will claim that Jesus has the power to forgive them of all sin, but he didn't have the power to change them. Uh, so, so what the Bible says is just is quite the opposite, and we've gone through some pretty convicting verses. Uh, sadly, a lot of them you don't hear a lot about because they're so convicting. People want to come up with some kind of angle. It can't really mean exactly what it says. Uh, but look, I'm a C student from Calhoun County, and these are all verses that I can understand. Now, they may be difficult to swallow, but they're not difficult to understand. And we have another one of these today. And, and what, what the dance is about that we're studying, and man, if you can get this, and I'm speaking this to my own life, it will radically transform your walk in Christ, and that is salvation, justification, redemption. There's nothing we can do to do that. We certainly, we certainly receive a gift. Some of you may believe that. Some of you believe you don't receive it. It doesn't matter what you believe, but you will redeem fully by the power of Jesus Christ by faith through grace. And that, that is done 100% by God. But sanctification, the power for that to be accomplished is still 100% found in the Holy Spirit and found by God only. However, we do have to take action. And we've been talking about that a lot. This theology that your sanctification somehow occurs without you doing anything is not biblical. It is not biblical. And here's another example of what we're going to talk about today. And in in, in part nine is talking about the Bible calling us to put sin to death. Again, that's, that's another action phrase. Put sin to death. Colossians 3, 5, we'll be uh, unpacking today. So let's look at it for just a minute. Put to death, therefore, and I'll tell you in a minute what therefore is therefore. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So here's Paul writing to this church. He's writing to the Colossians, and he's telling them that they need to take action because he sees these things in the church, and he says, again, he's talking to a church. This is not a citywide. This is not an evangelical event. Billy Graham hadn't showed up at a stadium. This is Paul talking to people who already claim that they are part of the church of Christ, and he's saying, but you need to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You mean you need to be working on this. And he says, now the power to do it is fully by the Holy Spirit, and it's fully in Christ, but you need to do it. Why? He says, so this therefore means he's referred to something that was before it, and that would be Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Listen to this. If, hang on to that, if is a little word, but it's a biggie, isn't it? If, then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's a choice. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So now that you know that, look at five, sounds a little different, doesn't it? Put to death, therefore. He's saying, so based on what I just said about what you claim about Jesus, we should see things about your sin nature changing. You just said that you have died to self, and you've been raised by Christ. And I love when Paul says this, if that's true, then we shouldn't see the things we see. Now, this is, again, not about a code of conduct. It's not about legalism, but it is absolutely about obedience, and it is absolutely about sanctification. And listen, the H word, everybody's terrified of it. It's also about holiness. Because I can't get past what Peter said in 1 Peter when he says that we can no longer claim ignorance because we're no longer held to the desires we had before. Remember the other things we've studied. Romans 6, you now have been freed from the reign of sin. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're now a slave to righteousness. And so you should be obeying the new master, not the old one. And if that's not happening, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And so it's a very challenging uh, challenge that, that, that Paul makes to this church and he makes to us. And this is what we talk about in, the, in chapter 9. If we are to pursue holiness, we must take some sort of, of decisive action. Remember, I've given you examples of that. Well, I wish 
I really wish I still didn't have a desire for porn anymore. Well, then stop watching it. Well, how did you get to where you didn't have a desire for it anymore? Because of the Holy Spirit. I became so bothered by this filth because of, of the holiness of Christ in my spirit, and I was so bothered by it. So what did you, just sit there till Jesus removed you? No, because I was bothered by it, I then took action and put to death the sin and got up and left. I don't look at it anymore. Who did that for you? Well, I was given the power to do it, but I had to actually do it, right? And so that's what he's talking about. There must be action. I love this. It says, it says we got to remove phrases like this. And if you've done this before, correct it. I've been, there's a lot of things this study and all the studies we're doing, you know, I'm correcting it. That's called sanctification. As I'm growing in Christ, as I'm maturing, I'm no longer justifying things that I've now outgrown spiritually. I, I can't justify it anymore because I know too much that's in conflict with what I'm doing. You know, it's almost like sometimes you ever, you ever get that attitude, I just don't want to know about it, that I don't, then I don't have to act on it. And uh, now let me tell you something. Ignorance of the law does not mean you're innocent. And I'm quoting a judge in Panama City on that one. So, so, so listen to this. So, so we, I sadly wish that wasn't true. We ask God to do something because it delays our responsibility in the matter. He said, I want to remove this. He used an example. He said, he talked to a person who claimed to be with Christ and he says that he was, he was struggling with a particular sin. And this is what the guy said that he said is not biblical. He said, I've been praying that God would motivate me to stop. As if God hasn't done enough. So the cross just wasn't enough. So, so God coming off his throne, taking on human flesh, going, and, and if you understand, and of course I know we don't understand it fully, you know, we, we serve a God that is one God, three persons. So really, if you look, the Father took his wrath and poured it out on his Son, but, but who is the Son? God incarnates, or really poured it out on himself, and then the Holy Spirit raised that body from the dead, and so God has done all this to resolve what we brought on ourselves, and now we're trying to be sanctified and be made holy through the process of feeding our spirit and defeating our flesh. And when our flesh is still on us, we're going to sit there and pray for God to give us the ability to stop. I hope he'll, I hope he'll, I hope he'll make me stop sinning. As if he hasn't already provided that. No, he's already provided it. You just got to go access it. You got to do something. But see, the, the quote of saying that. Remember what we said last week? And it really, man, that stuck with me. Stop saying you were defeated or you had victory over sin. Remove that phrase. Just say, I was obedient, I was disobedient. Because when you say it like that, you now realize I was responsible for what I did. I, I, was, I was having a situation with somebody that I love dearly over the last few days, and I certainly had to, to check myself on what I was doing wrong and the way that I had presented myself. But when the person that I love had responded with ways and with things that were sin, the person said, well, see, you frustrated me so bad. Look what I did. I said, no, 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 wait a minute. I'm going to take responsibility for my part, but how you responded, that's totally your responsibility. Don't you put that on me. Don't put that on anybody else. There's no situation that you're in that you said, I just couldn't help it. I had to sin. Now, that responsibility is still ours. The person who has committed, you know, well, look, well now look what you made me do. No, no, what, what we do is, is we're the one who did it. There's nothing that you can do to me that I can make an excuse that you made me sin. My response to you is still on the authority of Christ and still Christ in me. I'm fully in control of how I respond to you. And so, uh, so that's what he's talking about. So when you look at, at this phrase that he says, put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, then we got to think about what does put to death mean? If you go to, if you go to King James, the King James version of the Bible and uh, it uses the word mortify, to mortify your earthly nature. But the dictionary, if, if you look at the dictionary, when you talk about the word mortify, uh, this is what the dictionary says, to destroy the strength, vitality, or functioning of, to subdue, or deaden. Therefore, to put to death, the misdeeds of the body, this is another where we see this in Romans 8, 13. Remember, so Paul, Paul's used this before, and this to the church at Romans, put uh, the church at Rome, put to death the misdeeds of the body, to put to death whether it belongs to your earthly nature. These two phrases means what? We are supposed to take action to destroy the strength and vitality of sin and as it tries to reign in our bodies. 
It is our, you know, mortify, put to death. This means we are to take action and say, I, I will destroy the strength that this has over me. And there's action to do it. You say, well, Rick, doesn't God ultimately give you the strength to subdue it? Yes, he does, but I had to go do it. I will tell you this. I've told you this. We'll get to these verses in a minute. In my own life, the sins that exist in my life that aren't done, they're only still there, not because God hasn't given me the power to overcome them. I just haven't decided to overcome them, so I still like them better than I like Jesus. That's it. Any sin, I'm not talking about a stumble where you made a mistake and you said, Lord, I was convicted. That is the power, and you correct it. But I'm talking like this thing. I just can't seem to get past this. Well, you can't get past it because you don't want to. I still can't stop looking at what I shouldn't look at because you like to look at it. I still keep looking at, at, at women's breasts if they show me some cleavage. The only reason why you're doing that is because you want to. You would rather look at her breasts than to be right with God. You, you think you get more gratification out of that than you do out of holiness. And that's why you keep doing it. Because, you know, and, and he'll talk about this in a minute. So mortification must be done by the strength and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's the key again. I just said it. So when we mortify our sin in our life, we mortify the body and its earthly deeds. We do this only by the strength that's provided by the Holy Spirit, but we had to take action in order to use the strength of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? You know? I'm giving you the strength not to go see that woman, but you still got to not get in the car and drive over there. I'm giving you the strength not to look at this, not to listen to that. I'm giving you the strength not to... To, 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 to hold this against somebody and unforgive. I'm giving you the strength to forgive them. You have the power to forgive them, but you've got to decide to, to, to forgive them. I've given you the power not to get involved in this gossip, but you've got to decide you won't be involved in the gossip. And if you start looking at it, like I said before in marriage, I just talked to a guy about his marriage a minute ago before we came in here, and I said, look, here, he said, give me some pointers on the things that your marriage has survived. And I said, well, it's it. I, I, look, I'm going to give you some great Christian counselors, and you should certainly keep them in your arsenal, and they can be a help to you. But if you're asking me what my wife and I were able to do to, to come through the things we've come through, we just love Jesus. Notice I didn't say we love each other. We do. But that love can be all over the place based on how I behave, how she behaves. We're imperfect people. We're going to say the situation today, the Bible tells me to do this in order to be right with Christ, and this is the way I treat my wife. So I look to her and her imperfection, and I look to him and I find perfection. How am I going to justify sinning against Jesus? Well, I can't. How is she going to look and say, I justify, I'm not going to be respectful to my husband today because I don't feel like that he deserves it. And Jesus said, but I told you to be respectful to your husband. Right. And so what we do is I just, I just and, and, you know, my, my wife will tell you this, many times she treats me the way she's supposed to because she told Jesus she would, not because she thinks I'm worthy of it. And, and, and so the bottom line is if we, if we approach everything in our life, and I don't want to go overdo this, what would Jesus do? Because that's, that was a little bit off, but I will tell you this, I tell you what's not off, what would Jesus have me do? But again, it goes back to this. How do I know what Jesus would have me do if I don't know what Jesus requires? Well, the Bible tells you how you treat your wife. Do you know how you'll learn that? In the Bible. Hey, hey the Bible says the follower of Jesus is how you handle this situation. What does it say about it? Well, you need to know. You know, I've said this a thousand times. It's impossible to do what Jesus would do if you don't know what he did. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine me sitting here right now and putting you over there behind the microphone, sitting you down, and say, "Hey, do me a radio show. We're recording." You'd be like looking at the stuff. What? What? You, what? Well, you'd probably need to know how to do it, wouldn't you? You'd probably need to do some research and figure that out. So, remember, we always know all the things. Men, women. I know this is mainly, mainly a man study, and men are worse, worse at this than women. But I have found that every single human being knows an awful lot about what they care about. They know a lot about it. Ins and outs, ups and downs, 
You know why they went to find out everything they could know about it? Because they love it. So if, if, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you don't know anything about him and you don't know anything about God's uh, revelation about himself and his revelation about us, the reason why you don't know anything about that is not because it's difficult, not because you don't like to read, not because this, that, you're busy. The reason why you don't know anything about it and you, you keep being defeated is because you don't really love it. Because I found that everything that, that, that men love, they know a lot about. And, and, and I think that's what we have to ask ourselves. Listen to John Owens. Mortification from a self-strength carried out by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religions. So it's not something that we're ever going to do out of our great self-control or how wonderful we are. He said, if you can tell people that you can be holy of your own accord, that's the kind of garbage that is at the root of every false religion. He said, the spirit alone is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without him are useless. He is, he is the great efficient. He is the one who gives life and strength to our efforts. Yes, we have to have effort, but we have no ability to do it. Everybody still with me? Y'all follow that? But it's still a work we must do. And when I put down but, a smelly subject, I wrote it in capital letters because yes, he is the great efficient. Anything without him is useless. He, the spirit, uh, is sufficient for the work to be accomplished, but it's still work I have to participate in. It doesn't just happen. So how do we destroy the strength and vitality of sin? And then, of course, this chapter gives us a couple things, and it goes the longest on the first one. Uh, it gives us two things. The first one is what? Conviction. And this is something that I want everybody in here to be completely honest about. This, is, this, this Bible study is of no use if you cannot be honest about the situation you're in and who you are in your current state. So the first thing that we have to ask about this whole title, The Pursuit of, of Holiness, is are, are, have you been persuaded and do you actually desire to live a holy life? Some people don't. Hey, Rick, I'm going for the bare minimum. If, if I can do enough that I don't go to hell, let me tell you something. That is a very dangerous plan of redemption. It's very dangerous. How, how, I, I talked to a young man day before yesterday, and let's celebrate. This, this man is now going to be in eternity for the rest of his life. He had seen a car wreck the night before, and he saw two dead bodies. And, of course, I don't know what this says about me. When, when, when it was first suggested that he talked to me, one of the people who loved him says, well, I'm afraid Rick will overwhelm him. I didn't know where to take that as a compliment or, 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 or something I need to work on. But eventually we decided that the, the guy himself said that he wanted to talk to me. And I got on and I talked to him. And I was going to try my hardest because everybody told me to, you know, don't rush in, lay back, don't overwhelm him. And, uh, and they all meant well by that. But I got news for you. He's the one that was saying, hey, I got a bunch of stuff I want to ask you. And the Lord's like, can I open the door any wider? Or are you, are you going to, you know? And I said, uh, I said, so tell me about last night. I heard that was traumatic. He said, yeah. And I said, um, tell me what happened. I said, the wreck happened. It could have been me. Seconds, if the seconds had changed, it would have been me. The truck came by, missed me, plowed into these people and killed them. I saw their dead bodies. I said, man, I, I know that's rough. And I said, so what did you think of when you saw that? He said, I thought of if I was one of those bodies, where would I be? I said, so you're not sure about that. Now, this is the thing you, that I, I want you all to get. He said, no. I said, so really, honestly, I mean, you're, we're talking right now. You don't know what would have happened to you if you'd been killed? He said, I don't. And I said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in Jesus? Absolutely. So you believe in Jesus, but you had no idea what was going to happen to you if that had been you. He goes, no. I said, why? I just, I'm just not sure about that. So, see, belief in Jesus wasn't enough. You know why? The demons believe in Jesus. There's all kinds of people believe in Jesus. I have believed in Jesus intellectually from as long as I knew my right hand from my left. As long as I've been cognizant and I have any memory of life that I knew who I was, that I believed in Jesus completely. Now, I didn't see any evidence of Jesus till I was 31 years old forward. 
Well, well, I wonder how that could be. Well, I'll tell you how. Up to 31, I had a demonic faith. That's how. I just believed the things about Jesus that the demons believed, but I was just like them because guess what? I had sin in my life everywhere you turned because I wanted to sin. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live it. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, but when I died, I wanted God to still not send me to hell. Well, I got news for you. Anybody that can do that has never experienced Jesus. They might believe in it, but they don't know it. And this kid knew that. So praise the Lord. Uh, the Holy Spirit, Spirit began to work, and I certainly don't know the sincerity of his life, uh, of his heart. And I told him that. I said, I, these, I can't do words. This is not some deal. This is a, a situation between you and God. If you're repenting and you're submitting to his authority and you are broken and you are crying out, and, and in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you were believing in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're repenting and coming to his authority and you want to be forgiven of your sins and you are broken and you are turning from your sin to 180 and turning to him as best you know right now and say, I believe you pay for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead and I believe if I'm sincere in my heart right now that the power of the Holy Spirit will take my dead spirit. It will make it alive and you'll, you'll, you'll give me a spark today and then as that spark is there, I'm going to start talking to people like this. I'm going to get involved in your church. I'm going to get in your word. I'm going to start praying to you and then I'm going to put gasoline on this fire and I'm going to be sanctified, made holy and I'll be unrecognizable. I said, but I don't know the sincerity of that. And he said, well, I th I, he said, I think I'm sincere. I said, how do you know? He said, I'm weeping for the first time in five years and I got chills all over my body. I don't feel like I once felt. And I said, well, praise the Lord. We won't have to worry anymore about if your body's laying on the side of the road, what's going to happen to you. And he had a baby on the way. And I said, now that baby's got a shot. You know, you can go ahead and break this generational stuff so that baby don't have to work that out. And, and so, and y'all pray for him. Just remember him. His name's Chase. Remember him. Just gave his life to Christ day before yesterday. So first of all, there's got to be a desire that you even want to live a holy life because if, if, if being inside God's will is what you desire, we got to know that first. We must believe that the pursuit of holiness is worth the effort and the pain that's required to mortify the misdeeds of the body. We must be convinced that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 4. Hebrews 12, 4. You realize the writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. And you know why he says that? That's not, that's not some legalism. That's not some works-based salvation. That's a writer saying Jesus is too powerful for somebody to have truly experienced him and not be changed by it. Think about that, guys. When you have that kind of attitude, it's blasphemy. You are mocking Jesus. Somehow he saved you, but he can't change you. That's mockery. But you know what? The process of getting that sinful flesh that's been in the habit of sinning for so long and has been so fallen, holiness is going to require effort and it's going to require pain. It's going to require sacrifice. But it pays. It is such a better life. You remember what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity? He said, you don't really know the power, because he was writing during the times, you remember he went through the whole deal with World War II, and he said, you don't really understand the power of the German Empire by just going along with it. As long as you do whatever they tell you to do, then you really don't know how powerful they really are. If you want to know how powerful they really are, oppose them. Oppose them. Then you'll see the deal. So you think you know the power of your sinful flesh, but your sinful flesh is, ha is in a homecoming game. But when Jesus comes into your life and that Holy Spirit makes your spirit alive, now that flesh begins to fight for its life. And you'll understand that that's why Paul was talking about how he kept having to fight and he had to beat his body into submission daily and he had to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. You have to decide whether you are going to be held to the standards of the world. Hey, I got news for you. If you want to feel better about yourself, there are people everywhere that you can compare yourself to and say, compared to this person, I'm pretty good. The world standard is incredibly low. So what you have to understand is, am I going for a world standard or am I going for a biblical standard? Am I committed to the biblical standard of the holiness that says should be in the life of every follower of Jesus? The world always is working to dumb down the standard. The world loves to indulge 
and sinful nature. And the world will say over and over again, indulge, indulge, indulge. When you become, when you start putting on the glasses of the Holy Spirit and you start being sanctified, you'll start seeing the slogans of the world and you'll think, these things are completely opposite of the Bible. Follow your heart. What does the Bible say? Don't follow your heart. It's so full of deceit, no man can understand it. Hey, what about you? It's about you. This bud's for you. I heard a day spa commercial, a so-and-so day spa, where it's all about you. But what does the Bible say? It's not about you. It's about others. It's about sacrifice. It's about servanthood. See, that's completely a 180 from what the world says. You know, and the world says, try to be a big deal. The Bible says, you may be, never even be noticed. The Bible says, your identity is in what you do for a living. Your identity is, are, is, is the fame and fortune and money and things that you can acquire. The Bible says your identity is in Christ, and that's it. But it's so much more. And, it, and, and, and I don't know why we're so stupid, but how many more people got to put a gun in their mouth and blow the back of their heads out who have everything that the world said they should have before we realize maybe that's not what we're trying to attain? I mean, how many more, how many more people you got to see that's got everything the world keeps telling you that you should want to be happy and peaceful and fulfilled, but all these other people get it and they keep being unfulfilled? How many marriages, how many jobs, how many things for us to say that can't be it? Paul said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. That's in Romans 12, too, if you want to make that note, Romans 12, too. So Paul says the opposite. Don't let the squirrel, the, I mean the world, squeeze you into your own mold or a squirrel either. Uh, but let God remake you so that your attitude and your mind has changed. What? you got to think differently. One of the first Bible studies I ever went through as a new follower of Jesus was the mind of Christ. you got to change the way we see things. The world isn't seeing it correctly. He says only through God's word are our minds remolded and our values renewed. Listen to this out of Deuteronomy 17:19. Somebody put that down. Deuteronomy 17:19. This is what God said to all the earthly kings that, that were under his authority, the kings of his people. They should have a copy of his law, and it shall be with them, and he shall read it all the day of his all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully serving and applying all the words of this law and these statutes. So he said, we, hey, we just made this guy king. Let me tell you what he needs. Come here. You take my word, and you learn it forward and backward. And that way, you'll get. if you want to be a true king, if you want to be truly who you're called to be, you've got to be under my authority. And you know what this word will teach you? It'll teach you to fear me, and it'll teach you to, to be committed to keep the statutes and the law that I have laid out. And you say, Maria, what about the new covenant? Man, that's old covenant. Well, it's interesting what Jesus said in the new covenant. He took the same thing. Hey, look, everybody's leaning in now. Oh, he's in the New Testament. Everybody lean in. Let me tell you what Jesus said. See if this sounds familiar. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He kind of summed it up. It's not, not near as, not, didn't have as many words as the Old Testament, but ain't nothing changed. It's been fulfilled. Praise the Lord for that. It's been fulfilled, but this commitment to the commandments of God has never changed. Matter of fact, he said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, it's he who loves me. Now, you, you would think that some of the theologies out there right now, that obedience is not, but no. John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my commands. You know, we hit all those things out of 1 John. 1 John, he says, if you're trying to figure out who are the children of God and who are the children of, de of the devil, just look at the ones that obey. 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, there's a lot of people throw my name around, but if you want to know who's real, only those who do the will of the Father will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So I guess obedience is pretty big since the Bible says it's proof of salvation. I think that'd be huge. I, you know, if somebody, you know, just like this, somebody says, you know, I mean, hey, do you have a certain disease? They'll say, well, what are the symptoms? And you say, well, I got this, and I got that, and I got that. Sounds like you might have it. But then how do you figure out if you really have it? You got to do a blood test. And then officially, somebody says, we can now officially say you have this disease. And you know what the problem is? A lot of y'all have been inoculated with Jesus, but you don't have the disease. And what does inoculation do? We give you just a little bit of it. And we give you just that little bit that your body becomes what? Immune to it. Pushes it away. See, it's just a, that's that cultural Christianity. I got just a little bit of Jesus, and I kind of understand it. I don't want to go to hell. But you ain't got the disease because you know why? We don't see the symptoms. And if we did a blood test, what's the blood test? Obedience. I'm not talking about perfection, that you never made a mistake. And, you, you know, like Adrian Rogers said, when true salvation takes place, you may sin again, but you'll never be comfortable with it again. And so Jesus says, those who don't obey me don't even love me. And I have to tell you, and, and how about this? Who believes you can love somebody you don't know? No hands? No, of course you can't. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my command. And what I've discovered, the more I get to know Jesus, the more I love him, the more I love him, the more I obey him, because I get to where I think, you know what, he is better than sin. And like I said, the only sin that, that I still don't see victory over, is still, victory over are still sins that I still love more than I love Jesus. But I'm not satisfied with that, because that just means I don't know Jesus intimately enough. I, I, st I got work to do to when all of a sudden I look around and these particular little nuisances have been dealt with too because of how wonderful he is. Obedience is the pathway to holiness. But it's only as we have his commands that we can obey them, right? We're back to this again. How, how many people believe you can obey instructions that you've never read? That'd be tough. I think that'd be real tough. Trust me. I'm one of these kind of people, I can't read directions, so I start trying to put things together without the directions, and you know what? It's never put together right. You know why? I didn't read the directions. David said, now here comes another shocker. Are you ready for some more conviction? As if we had enough already. David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalms 119.11. Yes, I did something that I wish I had not done. But it's helpful. Psalms 119. David, boldly, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I did some research. That was written before Bathsheba. Psalms 32, 51, and 86, and 122 were written after Bathsheba. Everything else was written before that, including 119. So David said and was practicing the right thing, but what do we know happened right before Bathsheba? David had knocked it out of gear. In the spring, when kings go to battle, David didn't go. Said he was kind of out there on his terrace, just kind of peddling around. Lazy. So David said that in Psalms 119, but you know what? The fact that he didn't keep doing it, we ended up with Psalms 32, 51, 86, and 122 after he'd committed a great sin. But he said that he had hidden his word, God's word in his heart, that he might not sin against him. Well, some, somewhere along the way, he stopped hiding in his heart. See, some of you have that. You, you had a time in your life you saw some victory, and something's kind of happened, and you're off course. So what did David do to get back on course? He had wretched repentance. And you know what he did? He remembered that he wasn't really sinning against Uriah. He wasn't really sinning against Bathsheba. He wasn't really sinning against all these other wives that he had accumulated when he wasn't supposed to. Who he had ultimately sinned against was God. And that's when he got on his face and said, I, I deserve this to be destroyed. He had a wretched repentance. So one of the ways to, to, to keep God's word in our heart is to memorize Scripture. I know, I know. Look, that's very difficult for me. I see it happening now, 
And the only reason why I see it happening now is by re- repetition and, and, and by, by visuals. Uh, I, I've never been a good study person. I never made good grades in school. I have started memorizing scripture, and it's really just now starting to take place in my life because I actually became committed to wanting to remember what the scripture said about what I was facing. Now, he puts a plan, and just make a note of this if you want to look into it. We're not going to land here, but it's a plan about memorizing Scripture called the Navigator's Topical Memory System. Write that down, Navigator's Topical Memory System. That's a suggestion from him, and you can, you can look to that to see if that's something that will work for you. And, it, and so let me tell you what I've done that is not as in, uh, it, it won't be as um, overwhelming as that, but I still would say you try that, and I'm going to try it. But I'll tell you what you can do today. I began to memorize scriptures for certain things I would face in my life. What does the Bible say about this? Go memorize those scriptures. What does the Bible say about this? And you know what? We have no excuse. There was a day that you would have had to search the Bible, try to get a meeting with your pastor, and try to sit down with somebody with a degree, and try to say, where in the Bible is this covered? You know what you got to do now? You put in any topic, say, what does the Bible say? Give me verses on this. I was sitting in a meeting back there in, in, in my conference room, something you're going to be hearing about down the road, and, and, I'm, and I was sitting there, and the word arise came up. Just something we were talking about, about slogans and whatever for uh, an implementation of a, a discipleship plan we're working on. I said, how do you like the word arise? And he says, well, how many times is that used in the Bible? Verses with arise. Whoom. There they were. Didn't take any time. So, so now more than ever, God has allowed us to have access to technology that can help us to know what the Bible says about every single topic. So then you go, okay, and this we'll, we'll get into this because I want to get this in before we go because this is one of these life application things. So then we say, okay, Rick, we got it. We need to know the Word of God. We, if we really love Jesus, we obey His commandments. And those who are followers of Jesus, whatever the Bible says about blank, then that is the standard. What about those things the Bible's not real clear on? What about some of this gray area? What about some of this stuff where we got to know like different verses to really come to the conclusion that, look, for a perfect example, we deal with this law on the show, gambling. Hey, ain't no verse says thou shalt not gamble. Well, you're right. We, we, we will not find that, but we'll find a lot of verses that talk about the things that gambling brings that, are, that, that God doesn't like. We can certainly talk about that. And so he goes into this formula. He says, for, there's another, write this book down to another good one's a book called Chasing Elephants by Brent Crow. Chasing Elephants by Brent Crow. Talking about how does a Christian maneuver through these things in life that there's not a scripture that just clearly says this is the standard. And so he gives us something to lay out that's really good. So let's say right now you're, you, there's something that you're facing and you're like, I kind of think this is a gray area. I, I can't find a specific verse. Let's, let's use gambling. Okay, let's use that one, because that, that can be a controversial deal about whether it's sin or not sin. And um, so it says, here, here's, here's a kind of a, a formula to go by. You ask these questions. Uh, so we, first of all, we look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Write that down, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. So question number one, is it helpful? Is what I'm about to do or participate in or, or look at or 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 be part of, is this something that's helpful physically, spiritually, and mentally? Is this going to be beneficial to me physically, spiritually, most important, or mentally? Is it helpful? Uh, staying with the same thing about everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's First uh, Corinthians six twelve. Uh, it goes on and says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Question number two, does it bring me under its power? See, that, that's where gambling starts to have a problem now. It didn't do too well on question one, but now it's really got problems because we know what? Gambling, gamblers Anonymous. So we have people that became addicted to gambling. They squandered all their money, squandered all their family's money, uh, and, and, and they became so addicted to it that they drove their family themselves into financial ruin. And they abandoned their children. I saw one of the things, said one of the saddest things when you have a casino in your town is when the school bus driver said they have to go by looking for kids to go to school and they have to go pick them up at the casino because their parents stayed there all night and the kids are out in the parking lot. You know, there's a reason why casinos don't have any windows and they don't have any clocks. There's a reason for that. And, and so, 
So if you, if you think about this, say, well, was that something God wanted me to do? Anything. It didn't have to be gambling. Is there anything that brings you under its power? So is it helpful, physically, spiritually, or mentally? Does it bring me under its power? Porn certainly would not pass this test. Of course, porn's covered in so many verses that we could spend all day on that. And then we go to the next one. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Question number three, does it hurt others? Is what you're doing and what you're participating in hurt others? Now, see, this is where some of you are in sin when it comes to your consumption of alcohol. Because you say, well, Rick, the Bible doesn't say you can't consume alcohol. And we, I'm not going to get into all that theological stuff. But I, I will say this. You can sit down in front of me and say, I think I can make a biblical case that I can consume alcohol in moderation as long as I don't get drunk. I don't think that's sin. And I think you can make a biblical case that, to be considered. But let me tell you what you can't make a biblical case for. Drunkenness. And I've noticed a lot of times people who drink in moderation are usually slurring. So, 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 so drunkenness is something that you have to look at. There's no case for that. The Bible says that drunkenness is debauchery. It puts drunkenness on the same list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Okay? We don't let our minds be altered. Okay, but let's say that you got it under control. But you know what you're not allowed to do? To drink to the point that it causes someone who does have a, pro does have a problem with it to fall into drunkenness. You're not allowed to do that. You are not allowed to show how free you are in front of a person who struggles or is offended by alcohol. You're not free to do that. That's incorrect. And, uh, and so it says it would not pass the test of it hurting others. Fourth one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. If you're in a gray area, question number four is what I'm about to do or participate in, does it bring glory to God? Because the Bible says we, everything we do should bring glory to God, including eating and drinking. So is what I'm about to do bring glory to God? So hang on to these questions. Question one, is it helpful physically, spiritually, and mentally? Does it bring me under its power? Does it hurt others? Does it glorify God? And you take those principles and apply them to the grayer areas that maybe Scripture does not address directly enough for you. You can use these questions, and, and, and it says it may appear simple, but it's very powerful in developing that conviction. And, uh, and he goes on to talk about this. Like He, he even used an example, and, I, and look, this is in the book for those of you that read it. This is not a dig at Bubba. Uh, when, he, when he talked about a person who was obsessed with tennis, and this was a person that said, you know, uh, there's nothing inherently immoral about tennis, but this person said all I cared about was playing tennis all the time. And they were very good about it, but they said it had become an idol to them. So they gave it up completely until that was no longer an idol to them. And then they would play recreation, recreationally for exercise with the loved one, but that was it. So tennis in and of itself is not immoral. Fishing's not immoral. Hunting's not immoral. You know, these things are not immoral. Your football team's not immoral. But you know what? If you're obsessed with them, it is. You know, it, it bothers me to see someone more concerned about you know, they, 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 they're more worried to death whether their, their team's going to win 10 ball games next year or if they're going to have a shot at the national championship and they know, about, know more about a football team than they know about the Bible. I promise you, your knowledge of the football team may give you some fun days for your kids, but it ain't going to do anything for them whether, where they're going to end up in eternity. Nothing. And, and, and so if you get to the point where the football team is not an idol to you, then you're free to enjoy it. I hunt and fish and love it, but I loved it too much at one point in my life, especially deer hunting. I was obsessed with it, and I was obsessed with it to the point of sin and, and to the point that I was, I was abandoning my responsibilities to my wife when we had small children. I would go hunting no matter the situation with the children, including one time went on New Year's Day instead of fixing a meal for my kids and my wife. I mean, and I remember thinking, you're, you're, you're out of control with this. The conditions were right. The rut was on. I had to go. Well, let me tell you what's happened now. Since God convicted me of that, I can look you in the eye. I promise you. Look me in the eye. I'm completely honest. I don't care if I ever deer hunt again another day of my life. I don't care if I ever catch another bass. I really don't. So guess what? I enjoy those two things now more than I ever did. Because I don't care if I ever do it again. It's not more important to me than my children, my wife, and my Lord and Savior. It's just not. 
If you said this weekend you got a chance to go with your kids to do something that's going to be spiritually, you got a chance to go speak to a group of men, or you could go on a deer hunt, I promise you I would pick the first one, not the second. Does that mean I never deer hunt? No. Does it mean that I will if God says you got other things to do, you can't deer hunt this year? Yes. I say this all the time when it comes to your football team, deer hunting, golf, whatever it may be. You'll know whether it's an idol to you if you if you find it to be of more value than Jesus, if you love it more, you serve it more, you fear it more than Jesus. It is an idol. So this is the question I've asked before. Whatever this figure is, whether it deals with the, whatever hobby you have, if it deals with golf, if it deals with fishing, it deals with hunting, or it deals with sports, if the Lord God Almighty said to you this year, just this year, We'll use football. You cannot go see your team play. I don't know to the season tickets. Take that money, and I want you to donate it to what the church needs for this ministry to reach these people in that place. I want that money put right there, and you're going to have to be a martyr for Jesus and only watch the big games on your HD 72-inch TV. (laughs) You can't go to the games. Season tickets are out. Would you give it? If the answer is no, then you're in sin. If she said, this year, whatever you spend on hunting and fishing, it's out. I want that money to go toward the advancement of the kingdom. I want you to tie that to my kingdom and, I, and, and no hunting and fishing this year. Would you do it? No golf. Whatever you spend on golf and the time you spend on that, I want that spent with your wife. I want that spent with your children. I want that spent at my church. I don't want that time to be devoted to golf. I don't want that money to be devoted to golf. Would you give it? If the answer is no, it's an idol. And you're in sin. Well, the Bible didn't say thou shalt not play golf. No, but it did say don't have idols. (laughs) Okay? There's nothing immoral about golf unless it's your idol. Or maybe we'll use it to reach some people for Jesus coming up at the end of August. How about that? So, so when you get to these things, when you're dealing with, um, um, when you're dealing with some of the things that we have to deal with about maybe some of the things that we disagree in, and we're talking about this on, on page ninety of the book, some of these things that maybe you know in your theology, the the kind of non-essentials. This is what Jerry says about these things. He says the areas that that Christians differ in their conviction as to God's will, Paul speaks to this question in Romans 14 where he takes up the problem of eating certain food. He lays down three general principles to guide us. The first is that we should not judge those whose convictions are different from us. That's verses 1 through 4 in Romans 15. If somebody has different theology than you, you're not their judge. You, you You don't go up to a messianic Jew who says, I still don't eat pork and say, well, I don't eat pork. Who cares? You, you don't do that. The second principle is that whatever our convictions are, they must be to the Lord. That is developed out of a sense of obedience to Him. It can't be to bring glory to ourselves or look like we're more devoted Christian than somebody else. Uh, Verses 5 through 8. The third principle is whatever convictions we have developed as to the Lord, we must be true to those. Verse 23. If we go against our convictions, we are sinning, even though others may, may have perfect freedom in that particular thing. Meaning, if God has called you not to do something, this is another thing we can talk about alcohol. You know, people say, the people who say, well, there's nothing in the Bible. I, Jesus drank wine. Well, John the Baptist didn't. And we can talk about whether the alcohol level, the wine, whatever. But I tell you, we can say, what did, what did, the, did God say about John the Baptist? I want no alcohol to touch his lips. Well, he may say that to you. And if he does, then you better do it. That better be your, you, you better do what he says to do. But then you don't turn around and say, well, this person over here is not doing that. Well, that's, maybe, that's not maybe what he calls him to. You know, we're talking about sin. We're just talking about different calls in life. So the second quality that we need to develop if we truly want to be, be holy is commitment. Am I, so, so conviction is the first one. We ran through all the different convictions. The next one is commitment. So we've got to have a conviction. We've got to have commitment if we ever have ever going to pull off being truly made holy. Am I willing to develop convictions from the Scriptures and live by these convictions? Am I willing to say whatever the Bible says, that's what I do? Think about what Jesus, remember when Jesus said that example? I'm here to do whatever, the, whatever my Father says. Whatever He says, everything I do. 
This is often the rub. We hesitate to face up to God's standard of holiness in a specific area of life. We know that to do so will require obedience that too many times we are unwilling to give. I see this all the time in my life, but it is improving. I see it in others, especially when it comes to entertainment. I know that the Bible says I'm to be holy in all my conduct, but I am willing to be holy in some of it. But that's not what the Bible said. It says all of it. I'm not willing to be holy in all of it. I'm willing to be holy in some of it. That's not what the Bible says. So then then we're back to commitment. Are we willing to say every single thing in my life will be given to the Lord and I will abide by his standard in everything, not some things? Jesus said, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. Am I willing to give up a certain practice or habit that is keeping me from holiness? That right here is where most of us fail. We prefer to kind of dilly-dally with sin, to try not to, you know, try to get out there and play with it just a little bit without getting too deeply involved. We postpone the day that we say to sin, that is enough. We, we just we just won't. We just won't quite do it. We, we make all these false deadlines. All right, now, once I get through this thing, we get back from vacation, right, then now I'm going to take this home. And we never do. Solomon tells us that the eye of a man is never satisfied. Proverbs 27, 20, that's the feeding of the bear. Those of you that already heard the bear thing, y'all can pass it along to others. Do not feed the bears. Why? Because you never have enough marshmallows. You got 50, he needed 51. And if you don't have 51, then he eats you. The bear never says, appreciate that, I'm good. And you know what? Your eyes and your flesh will never say we're good. Never. If you don't believe that, go back to the examples I've already given you. We must recognize that we've developed habits and habit patterns of sin, and we can't break them unless we make a commitment to a life of holiness with zero exceptions. I'll say that again. A life committed to holiness that will no longer have exceptions. 1 John 2, 1. If you have never read the book of 1 John, especially chapter 2 and 3 about this, you need to. I write this to you so that you will not sin. So John wrote this letter to that church, and he says, this is my motivation, so you will stop sin. The aim for most of us is try not to sin too much. God is calling us to a much higher standard than we will ever call ourselves to. Somebody write that down. God is calling us to a higher standard than you'll ever hold yourself to. It's the reason why I can't work out by myself. When I start trying to have a better physical testimony, and you can tell i still got some work to do, you know why I don't work out alone? Because I don't do enough. That's good. I mean, I'm good. I'm good. But when I got somebody saying, this is what we're doing today, and you won't leave till it's done, I do it. And then I get in the truck and go, man, I'm glad I did that. I probably would have done a quarter of that if I was by myself. So what we have to do is, is, is stop with the exceptions and stop with our goal being, I don't want to send too much. But back to this. When do me, you know, I had a, remember us talking about this? Do you realize how weird this looks to our children that daddy calls, calls everybody to a high standard on everything except this? You, won't, you wouldn't accept this kind of attitude from your football coach. I'll try not to lose too much. You would accept this from your employees. I'll try to make my sales go some. I mean, I'll, what do I always say is, man, man, hey, we're going to be excellent. We're going to be the best of the best. Unless it comes to, until it comes to following Jesus, then we just kind of won't be somewhere in the middle. I want to be on the field. Except advancing the gospel, I'll take the stands. You know what that tells me? You don't think this gospel thing is of any value. You just try not to go to hell. Can you imagine if you were sitting there and you were a soldier and they said, hey, you need to, you need to have some training. And you said, well, my goal is just try not to get shot too much. Not get shot too much? How about don't get shot at all? Jonathan Edwards, listen to this. One of the greatest preachers 
from, from the early days of our country who preached the sinners in the hands of an angry God, and, was, and people were so convicted they started screaming and crying during the message. Where are those messages now? He said, I resolved to never do anything that I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I don't want to be doing this if this is the last hour of my life. That's good. Hang on to that one. And I'll, I'll wrap this up. We're done. There is no need to pray for victory over temptation if we are not willing to say no to it. It is only by learning to deny temptation that we will ever put to death the misdeeds of the body. We got to stop praying for, for, for Christ to change our desires if we're not willing to say no to them. If we're not willing to say no, he's not going to honor that prayer. So let's take this and let's apply this to our lives again this week. Take some time. If you got some time off, think in your mind some things that you need to adjust on. If you need me, rick at rickandbubba.com, or if you need my cell, I'll give it to you. And if you want to talk to me about the golf tournament thing I mentioned earlier, uh, before you leave, you can. If not, you can get with me when you've decided what you want to do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this conviction. Thank you for the application. As I'm sitting in my mind right now, thinking of the things in my life that still need to be addressed. And none of it is beyond your ability to change me. And we pray this in the name above every name, the name of change, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. If you got some time off this week, enjoy it.